and watch. Analyze Twitter feeds to see how people would answer this question, what I want for Christmas, things that I desire for Christmas, to understand some of the most wanted gifts for Christmas. And here are the top 13 most wanted gifts according to Twitter trends uh, in, at the end of 2016. Starting at number 13 were bags or purses because, you know, after all, you can never have enough bags or purses, right? Uh, number 12 were phones, 11 tickets. Number 10, money. Number 9, bears. I'm assuming that's like teddy bears. Number 8, makeup. Number 7, camera. And number 6, tattoos or piercing. That was a little bit surprising to know that more people wanted tattoos than money for Christmas. Number 5, cats. Number four, games. Number three, books. Number two, clothes. But the overwhelming choice of what people wanted for Christmas was, uh, um, and, it, 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 and it doesn't even come close, but puppies. Puppies are what people wanted the most for Christmas. Now, let me ask you a question. What do you want for Christmas? Um, and if it is not... Uh, limited to what someone could actually buy for you. But if God were to ask you, what is it that your heart longs for Christmas? What is it that you would want to ask me if God were to say? And you can ask me in private without the shame and the guilt of really revealing your heart. What is it that you would want for Christmas, or if not for Christmas, what is it that your soul has been yearning for for years? That 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 you've yearned for it so long that it's become an indelible pain in, in your soul. For some people, uh, it may not have lasted a long time, but it may be for a job, a meaningful employment that you've graduated college and you've been uh, on and off work of some sort, but you say, you know, uh, I thought that once I graduated college, I I would be working in something meaningful. For some of you, you've been painfully waiting for the right relationship. Now, you haven't been really asking for Mr. Perfect, but uh, if at least God can provide for me Mr. Okay, that that would be good enough. But Mr crummy have just continually been coming by your way, and so you've been waiting for a meaningful relationship, but for others, what you've been waiting for is a better world. If we could somehow bring peace, racial reconciliation, a, a solution for the homeless issue, that that would be something, if God were to give me anything, that those would be the kind of things that I would ask for. And then others are, are asking if, if God, in this particular season of life, um, if I can get into the college that I've applied to and wanting to, if you can bring healing in this physical or mental ailment that I've been struggling with or someone in my family has been struggling with, God, if you can bring reconciliation in a relationship that seems impossible uh, for me to reconcile. Most people have some deep painful, long-awaited void in their life. And if given an opportunity, we would ask God, would you answer this particular prayer request? We've been, um, we're in a season that we are calling 25 Days of Advent, 
Advent means the arrival of some things, and we wait for an Advent if there's a void and emptiness that we've been longing for someone to come and fill, and we are, uh, I just want you to clearly understand, we're legally borrowing from John Piper uh, a devotional um, through Desiring God, and, and we have the booklets out there for you to take, and it's been emailed to many of you. If you want, if you want it on soft copy, you haven't received it, please email me or our administrator. And every day we're looking at a particular passage and a short devotional. You can listen to it. You can um, you can look at it on Facebook, or you can take a, a hard copy. Um, and on Friday nights when Catapult meets, they go through it. On Saturday morning when we can gather together for early morning prayer, we go through it. And on Sunday mornings, the speakers will be speaking on that particular passage from that devotional. And today we're going to be looking at a particular passage of prayer that's almost never read or talked about during Christmas season. But if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And it's a prayer by someone who had a void in his life, a longing, a pain. And he's not normally a character that we associate with during Christmas season, but it's Zechariah. Um, and Zechariah was the, was the father of whom we know as John the Baptist. But before Jesus was born, before uh, the angel visited Mary and told her about the coming birth of Jesus Christ, actually, an angel came and visited a different figure, and it is Zechariah. And what we will discover is from this passage that Jonathan read, but from chapter 1, is um, that God will give him an answer to the, the pain that he has had, the void that he has felt, the prayers that he has made. But what we will discover is that God will answer abundantly, beyond what he has asked for because there was a pain beneath the pain that perhaps he did not uh, realize. And so we're going to be looking at it in three parts, the years of, sad, years of sadness, the day of visitation, and the life of worship. The years of sadness, the day of visitation, and the life of worship. Let's look at it from chapter 1, verse 5, and the years of sadness. We begin with the context, and he begins this way, and it's Dr. Luke writing, in the days of Herod, king of Judah. And, and we're just going to stop there. And he gives us a historical context in, in the time in which this all occurred. And what we know of this period is this. Although it says in the days of Herod, king of Judah, uh, Herod was a king but not really a king because Israel was a nation but not really a nation. For those of you who kind of understood this context, Israel was under occupation by the Roman Empire. And so they had a king, but he did not really have authority. They were a nation, but they didn't have walls that protected their boundaries. And they were a, a country, uh, but not really a country. And, and this, isn't, uh, this is not just a, a, a short-lived uh, period of Israel's history, but this has lasted for decades and centuries for this people. Before the Romans... Uh, were the Babylonians, or the Persians, and before the Persians, it was the Babylonians, and before the Babylonians, uh, for their northern brethren, it was the Assyrians. The glory days of King David and, and Solomon were gone, and there's this tiny nation called Israel, or at least the people 
of Hebrews, uh, of the Jews, who were oppressed, and they felt in some ways a collective pain. They felt like their, their existence was destined for pain, that their parents' lives were in misery, and their children would grow up in misery. You know, almost all of us in this uh, room, I, I would say all of us, and I don't know each one of your uh, contexts, but we, grow, we grew up in a culture of optimism. We grew up in a culture of optimism, meaning this, that if I tried hard enough, if I was smart enough, that my kids can potentially have a better life than I do. Right? We, we, we just had opportunities uh, around us, but that isn't always true for all people in all cultures. And I don't know if this is true of your parents. Uh, I think a lot of you are younger than me. But uh, I know this is true of my grandparents' generation in particular. That they grew up in a culture in which there wasn't a collective optimism. But there was a collective pain. Perhaps it's years of uh, occupation by a foreign nation, or perhaps it was because of a civil war that divided brothers against brothers. There was a song, it was almost a, 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 a national kind of a folk song um, before, and it was in, in Korea where my, I grew up in, uh, a part of my life in. Um, and this song is, is, has been well known, and this is a song before Gangnam Style, which is now, unfortunately, the most famous Korean song. But before Gangnam Style, uh, is a song called Arirang. And I used to sing Arirang when I was uh, younger, and I thought it was a nice, cute, like, optimistic song until I realized that the latter verses meant something very, very different. And the latter verses says something to the effect of, if you, if you cross that Arirang Pass and you leave me behind, I hope your feet become diseased because you've abandoned me. Something to that effect. It is a, it's, a, it's a tragic song that's existed throughout the history of hundreds of years in Korea. And... Um, I remember reading a dissertation one time, and it talked about this concept called Korean Han. And I didn't quite know what Han meant, but this is how a scholar described it. It is an all-encompassing sense of bitterness, a mixture of angst, endurance, and a yearning for revenge that tests a person's soul a condition marked by deep sorrow and a sense of incompleteness that can have fatal consequences. Most of us can't relate to this because we grew up in a fairly optimistic culture, but I think it's something that my grandparents understood. And there's this inner anguish and bitterness, and they can't say with confidence my, the life of my children will be better. I believe that in this particular culture of Israel uh, that, that Luke frames us with, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, the Jews felt the sense of Han, if they could, if I can say it. There was a sense of pessimism, a collective pain, that they've, they're in oppression, 
they've been in oppression, they can't see a way out of oppression. That though they were a chosen people some hundreds of years ago, but they haven't seen that for centuries. That they, they are perhaps relegated to pain. If Zechariah had a prayer, it would be this. If he, would, if he were asked, what is your desire for Christmas? And if, if, if I can have anything, it would be this. Lord, save our people. Can you save our people? We go on. So Luke frames this context, and then he introduces us to a person in verse 5. There was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. So we are told so far, this is um, a married couple, Aaron and Elizabeth. They come from good stock, meaning they have good lineage, um, important lineage. And he had a a very noble occupation. He was a priest uh, in a particular division, which was a very important division of the priests. And they, in terms of uh, just how they lived, they lived a fairly uh, blameless, righteous lifestyle. They were people of integrity, good family, etc. It says, though, in verse 7, and there's a but. A but, and we're told three things about Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, this couple. Three things. They had no children. Elizabeth was biologically unable to have children. And they were old. Now, you know, um, for a woman and for a couple not being able to bear children, uh, if it wasn't out of their choice, was, would have been difficult enough. And every culture has things that they put, they value higher than other things in that culture. And in this Jewish Eastern culture, a woman, uh, a woman was oftentimes valued for her ability to have children. And in this particular culture, being unable to have children was, I believe, an extremely painful part of her identity. That is of Elizabeth. One Jewish rabbi uh, said that, um, that a Jew who has no wife or a Jew who has a wife but who has no children can become excommunicated. And being childless is a ground for divorce, a rabbi once wrote. You know, it's interesting that um, I, uh, I, I, I normally don't talk about this a lot, but um, I'm going to talk about Korea again because uh, I pastored in Korea for two years, one as an intern, and, and one year I was an interim pastor. And so my, my Korean language wasn't very good. I, I came to the United States when I was nine years old, so I spoke like a third grader. And I, and I had to preach every week with a third grader vocabulary. And so I would write things out and I would ask people, you know, how is this pronounced? How, you know, what, how do I say this, et cetera? And uh, somehow I ended up being the senior pastor, the senior interim pastor of this little church in um, Taedok. And it was like the, uh, it was in a science town like, the, like Boston. And, and they, the church met at a school. It's kind of like the MIT equivalent. And I had to preach there every Sunday to people who are doctors and PhDs and, and, and et cetera. 
what is interesting is this particular church had a culture in which, oh, you know, we're not going to call people by church titles like deacons and elders, which is very, very traditional uh, in Korean culture. But we just want to call people by, by, you know, just, just, just how we would normally. And what is really, uh, and I was trying to learn the Korean culture, and so um, it would have been easy for me to call people Mr. and last name, but in Korea, you don't do that. Um, and if it, normally in the church context, you would say, you know, like deacon or elder or, or things of that nature, but they said, no, we're not going to do that. And the way that they normally call people in Korean culture is um, a woman is referred to by, do you know how? The name of the oldest child. So, uh, they would call my wife, you know, uh, or if she wasn't a pastor's wife, um, oh, um, hi, mother of Christine. That, that would be how you are referred to. They don't use the second person um, pronoun like you, and so people are called by uh, that child's name. And uh, you know, if, you, if you call, uh, well, I, I remember calling my parents' friends by their children's name. But they, they don't, I don't even know their names. And I remember one time I, I was just struggling with this because I, 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 there were some couples that didn't have children. And so I asked one of the leaders, you know, uh, I understand the culture at this church, but what do I call them? You know, like, how do I, like, say hello? And, and this particular experienced leader of the church got a little bit kind of, uh, you know, like, confused, too, and said, you know what? I, you just kind of, like, like, capture their attention and just start talking to them. <laughs> you don't call them anything. And it was interesting, one of the things that I realized that in that particular culture, Titles were important because it, it gives you identity. And for women, oftentimes, their children are, our, are their identity. And here was Zechariah and Elizabeth who had no children, who, who were unable to have children, and they were beyond being able to have children. In every culture, there are things that it values. You know, you could grow up in a culture that value education, and no matter how successful you are, if you didn't have the right kind of education, if you were a high school dropout, it would eventually bring shame to you. If you grow up in a culture that where beauty is, is the thing that people value the most, if you weren't one of the more beautiful ones, you felt like my identity wasn't as valued. If you grew up in a culture where being uh, well-known and popular was important, that perhaps being an introvert was something that you really struggled with. Every culture has things it values, but in this particular culture, Zachariah and his wife Elizabeth, this, this dear, blameless couple, I'm guessing struggled deeply with this one personal pain the lack, the void that they had. And if, if, if Zechariah were asked by God, Zechariah, I can give you one gift for Christmas, what would it be? I think Zechariah would have said, Lord, would you, if, 
if, if you're so gracious, give us a child. And it's interesting later on when Elizabeth finds out that she's pregnant and she, she prays and she thanks God, she speaks to herself that, that her reproach has been taken away from her, that her shame has been taken away from her, meaning that she lived most of her adult life in shame. So this is the years of pain, and all of us have something that we struggle with. All of us do. Now let's turn to the second part, which is the day of visitation. And there's a particular day when everything changed. In verse 8, while he, Zechariah, was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, it fell to him not by, uh, by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside and an hour, at the hour of incense. Now, uh, we l- read that, and we, you know, there's not much that registers to us. But this particular event for Zechariah was an opportunity of a lifetime, okay? To go into the temple, and in particular, the holy place, and to burn incense, it seems to us like just a duty. But I'll tell you why this was so monumental in his life. First of all, uh, the Jewish temple had um, concentric kind of um, areas Gentiles can go to the, the outer uh, area of the temple. Uh, women can go further in. Uh, it's only the male Jews who can go in further into the temple. But only the priests and only the selected priests would be able to go into what is known as the holy place. And that's where incense would be burned. So if you think about it, uh, all of humanity... Uh, except the chosen priests are able to go into this particular room. And they weren't able to go in at any time. They were only able to go in at their designated chosen opportunity. And there were about uh, 1,800 priests at this particular time. Incense would be burned in the, once in the morning, once in the evening. And to be chosen uh, to go burn incense was often done by a lot or by a drawing. And so if you're one of the 1,800 priests whose names are part of this lot, uh, that was a big honor of itself. But some of those priests never got chosen because their, their lots weren't drawn. And so some of these priests would never be able to go into the holy place. Uh, but on this particular occasion, uh, Zechariah was was drawn, was able to go into the holy place. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go into the holy place, and it's not just a room. The way that God worked in this particular time is the glory of God somehow rested in the holy of holies and in the holy place. God's presence was there um, in a unique way. And so it was a sinful man becoming mediator between a sinful man and a holy God, representing man and burning incense before a holy God. It was a a unique opportunity. Zachariah uh, was visiting God. 
He was, uh, he had lived his whole life for this one opportunity to come before a holy God, feeling though completely sinful. And it was in this particular occasion on this day, this is what happened. Verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. Now, you know, imagine um, you're feeling unworthy, you're feeling uh, guilty, you're feeling shame. Now, I want you to understand his psyche. Although he was a priest and he was chosen, remember what was told to us about Zechariah and his wife? They had no what? They had no children. And in some ways, he he must have felt, I'm a little cursed. The hand of the Lord, the blessing of the Lord is not on me. And he goes in, and, and although he lived his life the best that he could, there's one opportunity that he gets as close as possible to the holiness of God. God shows up, and he begins to fear and he falls on his face. But, Zach- but Zechariah is given good news, verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard. That prayer that you've been praying for for years, throughout your marriage, throughout your young, youthful years, throughout your midlife crisis years, throughout your old years. And it's just kind of a longing now, maybe not even a prayer. Your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call him, his name, John, which is translated, Yahweh has been gracious. God has been gracious to you. And so he, he visits God and God comes to visit him and says, uh, um, I've heard your prayer and I'm answering your prayer. You will have a child. And we think, great, this, you know, everything that he's wanted. But the angel doesn't stop there. Verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness. Of course, parents would. And many will jo- rejoice at his birth. Hmm. Others will rejoice at the birth of John because he will be great before the Lord. Hmm? He will achieve a certain status of greatness or something. And he will drink no wine or strong drink. And uh, according to the Exodus, this is a Nazareth vowel. This is what, uh, when, when, um, when a worshiper of God were committed to something special for God, they would, they would do this thing. They, they would abstain from alcohol for a period of time. But for John... Um, this is a lifetime thing, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is great. He, he was born pre-saved, even from his mother's womb. And finally, verse 16, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. Somehow, God will use John to turn the hearts of many to God. How will he do so? This is important. Verse 17, And he, John, you have to pay attention to the pronouns, and he, John, will go before him, 
the angel saying to Zechariah the father, and your son will go before someone, the NASB calls it a front, a forerunner. And he will go before him in the spirit and, the, and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so what, uh, what the angel said to Zechariah is that you will have a son, you will rejoice, others will rejoice, he will be set apart um, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, with the Holy Spirit, and he will go before someone else. Your son will prepare a way. Your son will be the, the opening act for something greater. And that he who will follow, who will come afterward, will turns of the heart, turns the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. This is um, Zechariah's burning bush moment. If you recall that story of Moses wandering in the wilderness, he sees a burning bush and go, oh, this is God. This is Zechariah's burning bush moment. Um, and, and this occurred during that day when and Zechariah visited the Lord and the Lord visited him. I believe that some of us, many of us, have burning bush moments. And if I recall in my lifetime, you know, most of my like turnings happen real gradually, but there are these moments in my life where I can recall that's when God visited me. I can I recall that that's the day that God spoke to me. That's the God. That's the day that God revealed a part of Himself to me, and I believe that there are times when when after praying for years, when when you're anguishing in your void and your vacuum, and you. Seek God, and God gives you a burning bush. But you know what the problem is? We see the burning bush, and we just, you know, walk around it. We ignore it because we're too busy looking at our social media with the noise of the world. We don't sit quietly enough to listen. But this changed Zechariah's life, and we go to, finally, the life of worship. Throughout Elizabeth's pregnancy, Zechariah has been unable to speak. That particular encounter with the angel, uh, Zechariah said, you know, but, but I'm old. How is this going to happen? And the angel said, I am Gabriel. I am the angel, etc. But as a sign, you will not be able to speak. So he becomes deaf. So for at least nine months and probably a little more, at least nine months and eight days, you know, Zechariah has been unable to to speak. And, and he's been recounting the words that the angel has told him. That there is something unique, that, that God has already given us a miracle because my aged wife is pregnant and it's obvious. And we already know that it's a son because God told us it's going to be a son. And that, and that he will be great and set apart for some special purpose. And then there's this last part John, uh, uh, Zechariah, I think, has been thinking, but he will prepare the way for someone. And that language reminded him of, of phrases that he knew from the Old Testament, from the prophets of old. Prepare the way for the Messiah. That's been something 
that his people have been waiting for. That collective pain that they've had, that they pray for on a regular basis. Is it possible that the son that, that God has miraculously given to us, will, he's actually preparing the way for the Messiah? That we've prayed for a baby, but God has given to us the baby, When the child is finally born, they named him John. Yahweh has been gracious. And um, when he is named that, and when they go on the eighth day to circumcise uh, John, uh, Zechariah is finally able to speak again. And it's after months and months of pondering and thinking and meditating um, there's a pain, a void that, that Zechariah has been struggling with, a national pain that his people had, and a personal pain that his, he, he and his wife have had. But they've been pondering the meaning of the birth of his son, who is to prepare the birth of another. And when he is born and dedicated, verse 68, and this is the passage that Jonathan read for us. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. You know what? Um, um, You have to be really careful when you read this, okay? Sometimes we have to slow down a little bit. We know that John and Elizabeth were not from the line of David. And so when he says... And God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. John is speaking of the Messiah, of the one that his son is preparing for. Verse 70, and he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the, ho- the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of life. Zechariah understood that God has answered this personal prayer. Yes, God gave him and this old man and his old uh, wife a child that they did not uh, you know, physically have. But God answered more than that. God answered their national prayer that God would give them a Messiah that would redeem his people, would pay the debt that they should have paid on their own, but they could not. But even more than that, verse 76, and now the focus shifts from John to, uh, oh, no, from, from the Messiah to the child, Uh, which is John, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his way to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins. It is interesting what Zechariah says is um, that, that God is going to use my son to prepare the way, and through the the Messiah, God will not only redeem his people, but to give forgiveness of sins. 
Zachariah prayed for a baby, but God gave him a baby who will prepare the way for the baby, the Christ. He prayed for physical salvation, maybe, for his people, but God gave him so much more. You know, what is it that we would pray for? What is it that we long for? Words? What's our big void or vacuum or pain, the emptiness in our lives? You know, um, Tim Keller um, t- often talks about the sin beneath the sin. Um, what is the, the vacuum beneath the vacuum? What is the emptiness beneath the emptiness? You know, we could say that not having a puppy is an emptiness, right? Uh, you know, because puppies are cute and it's affectionate and I need affection. And, and perhaps more seriously, it's, uh, you know, when we say that my, my number one Christmas want list um, is that of a puppy, but maybe it's that of a meaningful relationship. That, uh, yes, I, I want to have affection with someone who will love me. Always. A, a, a spouse or a child or a friendship. But the, the vacuum beneath the vacuum is this. That we can have a puppy, we can have a great spouse, we can have children, we can have friends. But in the most important relationship that we need to have, that with our Heavenly Father, if that's been broken, that all those human relationships will still fall short in filling our souls, that un- unless we're reconnected with our Heavenly Father, that human relationships will always leave us empty. We can say that, that the pain that I have, the void that I have is, is that I'm not healthy or that, that, that not my only physical health, my, my mental health, that financially I wish I, that our family I can provide for better but we can have perfect health, physical health. We can have an abundance of material wealth. But if we do not have eternal life, where does that leave us? That we are broken then. We can ask for world peace. We can have a, a, a place without conflict. But if we do not have confidence in eternity, a heaven beyond this life, what do we actually have? So I want us to realize that this season of Advent, and I'm going to ask the, elder, uh, the, the band to come up and, and the elders to prepare their place. That oftentimes we look at the, the void in our lives, the pain in our lives, and, and in our private moments, and our private pains, and say, God, if only you can give me this, but I, I want you to understand that there's a, a void beneath the void, the emptiness beneath the emptiness. And if we do not understand that God has given us an answer to that emptiness already, that it would be as if we were walking by the burning bush and, and still in our pains. A few weeks ago, we had a, a new member's luncheon at the Catapult Chapel, and um, the presider asked different questions of the different new members, and they asked one of the new members, what is one of your greatest fears? What is one of your greatest fears? 
And she could have answered many of things, um, and, um, you know, or others could have, you know, not being able to get married, not being able to have children, not being able to uh, have uh, a, a, a gainful employment or losing their employment, uh, getting sick, etc. But this uh, one member uh, said, you know, one of, and she was being honest, one of my greatest fears is that my children would walk away from the Lord. I think she understood that you can have everything in the world, but if you don't have God, you really have nothing. And the thing about Christmas is this, the great news about Christmas and that which we've waited for long, uh, for so long, for a century, for millennials, is this, that though sometimes we ask for puppies, God has given to us so much more. That we've, we've asked God to heal our pains, but God has given to us so much more, more than we could have ever imagined. God has given to you, to me, a Savior, a forgiver of sins. And that's Christmas. And because we forget, um, and it's, it, Jesus reminds us to do this on a regular basis, what we call communion. That Christ did not come simply to be a baby and, and for us to adore him in a quiet manger, in a silent night, but to remember that he came in order to give his life for the sins of many so that we may be forgiven. And so before he did so, he passed out bread, passed out cup, and said to his disciples, take, this is for you. And so today, as we begin the first Sunday of our Advent series, I would ask you, uh, to take your pains, your, your emptiness, and realize that God has answered the emptiness behind it already. And, and to be grateful and to rejoice along with Zechariah. As uh, the band plays, that will be your invitation to come, get a piece of bread, get a, piece, uh, a cup, um, and we'll, when you go back to your seats, we will partake of it together.